I want to start this morning with a little game of Name That Tune. So I've got a hunch that some of you in the room can name this song after hearing just five notes. So here's how it'll work. We're going to play the little clip. And if you think you know what the song is, put your hand in the air and I'm going to call on somebody. Tell me what the song is. You ready for this? Name that tune. All right, Joe, play the clip. Stop right there. All right, all right. I saw your hand first right there. That's it. I can't get no satisfaction. All right, let's keep, let's keep it going a little longer. Let's go. All of you know this song. You just don't know that you know this song yet. You can sing along if you want to. Yeah, there it is. Come on. You know this next part. And I try. And I try, and I try, and I try. Everybody now, I can't get no. I can't get no. All right. Some of you moved here from California to avoid that nonsense. And here it is. The next thing I'm going to put on my Hawaiian shirt. Now, who, by the way, who, who recorded that song? Anybody know? Rolling Stones. Okay, now, I, I didn't grow up in a rock and roll family. Can I just say that there? So uh, I, I knew that song, but I had this week, I went back and researched this. Like, what's the story behind this song? It's actually very interesting. Okay, Rolling Stones, the, you know, the, the two guys that wrote this song were Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Okay, you've probably heard of at least Mick Jagger. Okay, Keith Richards was an electric guitar player. He's a guitar player. And uh, the story goes that he was sleeping one night and he woke up in the middle of the night with that, that hook in his head. And he recorded it on a tape or cassette recorder he had. And then he went back to sleep, woke up the next morning, did not remember a thing and, and saw the tape player, played whatever he'd recorded. And, and he heard about you know, two minutes of him riffing on the guitar and then 40 minutes of him snoring as he fell back to sleep. <laughs> He took that little riff, he went to Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger wrote the lyrics, and what became the song that you just sang was born. Now, it was the first number one hit the Rolling Stones ever had in the United States. They were a British band. This song put them on the map. This is their iconic song. In fact, not just the Rolling Stones iconic song, it's one of rock and roll's iconic songs. And I was thinking about what made what makes this song so enduring? Why do we all know it? Why is it shown up in our lives in different places? And well, the first thing is that guitar hook is pretty catchy. The second thing is you can hear the chorus one time and never forget it. But I think the main reason why we all know that song is because it gives voice to a longing in every human heart. And I know some of you, as you're hearing those lyrics right now, you're thinking, well, that's not me. You know, I'm not a, a rock and roll that's pursuing, you know, women and drugs and all these kinds of guys or all these kinds of different things. And, and you might be thinking, I can't identify with that cry of his heart. I've, I'm satisfied. I'm a peaceful person. But here's the reality is every one of us comes into this world craving satisfaction. <laughs> craving, maybe you think of it as happiness. You just want to be happy or, or peaceful or you just want to have comfort or, or rest or flourishing or fullness of life. And from the moment we are born until the moment we die, we try and we try and we try 
and we try. There is an inner restlessness in us that I think this song gives voice to in, in the way that he just sort of shouts out that one. I can't get, no. It's just, honestly, it's, it's not so much the anthem of rock and roll as it is the anthem of every fallen human heart. And so we get to this text this morning that Luke read. And he set it up really well. It's about contentment. It's about satisfaction. And one of the things I love about Paul's writing and Philippians in particular is how practical this stuff is. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about anxiety. Last week, Lloyd, although he was not here, none of us were here. I hope you had a chance to watch his message. Go back and watch it if you didn't. He talked about what we think about. He talked about how the things we think about and therefore the things we practice either are going to lead us toward peace or away from peace. All this stuff is so practical. And so we get to this text this morning and it's about one of the things that we struggle with most in life. The cry of our hearts. I want fullness. I want fulfillment. We were made that way. I don't think we have to apologize for desiring these things. And so let's dive into this text. It's, it's rich. It's honestly not easy. It includes maybe the best known verse in all of Philippians, which by the way, is probably the most misunderstood verse in all of Philippians. We're going to get into all that, but let's start in verse 10 because Paul's going to set this context up in, in maybe in, in an unexpected way. So look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Okay. Remember, here's what's going on. This was Paul's favorite church. This is the church that he had closest relationship with. This is a church that had been financially supporting him through all his missionary journeys. And here he finds himself imprisoned in Rome. And it was Epaphroditus, a member of the Philippian church, who had traveled all the way to Rome and found Paul and given him this gift. It must have been a very substantial gift or it wouldn't have been worth the trip. And Paul is now describing the moment, how he felt when he received this gift. And he's saying, you know, it, it was at length. And then I, he, almost, he almost catches himself. It's like, no, I, I don't mean to complain. He goes and says, you were, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity until now. So, you know, he's kind of letting, get, giving them an out of why it took so long. There's a really interesting word I just want to unpack briefly. We won't spend a lot of time on this verse, but this word you have revived, it's an interesting verb in the Greek. It's the idea of a flower coming back in bloom that had been dormant. It's actually a horticultural, horticultural term. It's like your concern for me is back in bloom. It's, it's, it's come back. And I have this image in my mind of, of Paul in this season of wondering who's out there who cares? Who's out there who knows I'm in prison? And, and think of it as maybe the, the, the winter of Paul's soul. And then suddenly one morning, spring comes. Suddenly one morning, Epaphroditus shows up with this gift and, and he's able to reconnect with Paul and tell him all that's happening in the church back in Philippi. I like the way that, that Tom Wright writes this. He says, for Paul, Epaphroditus's arrival was like spring flowers suddenly bursting into bloom. That's what that verb actually means. Telling Paul the Easter message once more. The Easter message, you know, that's, that's what the spring flowers coming up after a long winter represents. New life, 
is coming back up. So, so Paul is, is rejoicing in this, you know, uh, your, your concern for me has been revived. Now he goes on from there and he's going to take this deeper. He's going to say, or he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. By the way, that's not, I've learned in whatever situation I am supposed to be content. No, it's whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned to be content in every situation. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's interesting how Paul started this section with, thank you for the gift. And now he's using it as an opportunity to teach them something profound. And the thing he wants them to understand is contentment, what it means to be content. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am, I have learned to be content. Content is a very interesting word in the Greek, and we need to spend some time talking about it. It actually is a philosophical term, a technical philosophical term of that day, the Greek word was, and it means self-sufficiency. Now, uh, do you remember learning in high school or college, for those of you that are past high school and college, and some of you are in it right now, do you remember learning about the Stoics or Stoic philosophy, stoicism. That probably, you know, you've heard that phrase somewhere. You might remember, some of you know a lot more about it than I do. But I had to go back and do some reading about the Stoics. And here's the reason I spent some time on this. Stoicism was all the rage in Paul's day. And in fact, this word content was used by the Stoics, the Stoic philosophers, as the highest goal in life. And again, it means self-sufficient. So what the Stoic philosophers would say is the highest goal is to be above all your circumstances. So poverty can't hurt you, but, but nor can wealth trick you. You need to kind of be outside of it all. You need to be above it all. You need to find peace in the sufficiency of your own self. Happiness and peace comes from yourself. You don't need anyone or anything outside of you in order to be satisfied. That's what the Stoic philosophers taught. So in other words, your circumstances can't satisfy you. So don't look to them for satisfaction. Here's a quote from Seneca. Seneca was was one of the most well-known Stoic philosophers and he was a poet as well. He wrote this. The wise man is sufficient unto himself for a happy existence. Sufficient unto himself for a happy existence. So if, uh, if Seneca met Mick Jagger, Seneca would say, you're a fool. The reason you can't get no satisfaction is you're looking out there. You need to look in yourself. This is what Seneca would say. Now, at this point in our text, it seems very much that Paul is agreeing with him. That, that Paul it, essentially is saying that the, the, the Stoicists, the, the, the Stoic philosophers have it right. Contentment is not found in your circumstances. You know, Paul, Paul's kind of saying, I, I've learned to be content in myself, whatever situation I am, to be content. But Paul's not done. In fact, 
I think he's doing a little juke here. I, I think Paul is, is actually intentionally grabbing onto a philosophical word. And, and in that, that day, that word content was primarily used in philosophical debates. It wasn't as common a word as, as we use it today. He's, he's purposely getting them to think about philosophy and think about the, the Stoic philosophy to get them movily or mentally moving in a certain direction and then he's going to take a turn. And here's what I mean by this. The next verse, okay, verse 13 is the verse that people think of Philippians, a lot of them. It's probably the best known verse. But you can't properly understand 13 until you see how 12 is connected to it. So look at 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then you need to imagine there's like a colon right there. It's just like, here's the secret. I'm about to tell you the secret. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the secret. Now there's so much to say about this verse. I think we need to start with how most people unknowingly misinterpret this verse. So I'm, I'm going to put some images on the screen that represent the context where we typically see this verse quoted. Something like this. Here, here's another one. And, and, and some of you really like this guy, so I'm, I'm not insulting the guy, okay? Okay, now I don't know if you can read, you know, there's the verse underneath his, his, his eyes. Good guy, just played for the wrong team. Okay, good guy. <laughs> w w one more. Anyone know whose sneakers these are? Steph Curry. Yeah, Steph Curry sneakers. I can do all things if you can't, if you can't read that. Again, I, my, my intention is, is not to pick on these guys. I actually appreciate them using their platform to be bold with their faith. I'm just trying to show the context that most people understand this verse. And, and here, here's how I would, would understand, or here's how I would articulate it. Most people understand this verse basically saying, with, with Christ's power in me, I can accomplish anything. I, I can do amazing and wonderful things when Christ is in me. I can accomplish whatever. Nothing's impossible. I can do great things by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not necessarily all untrue, but that's not what Paul was writing here. Remember, the context is contentment. Paul's saying, here's the secret to contentment. So if you follow the train of thought, Paul's saying, here's the secret I've learned to being content in any and every circumstance. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, think of it this way. I am content in all these things because of Christ who strengthens me. In fact, I want to take this a step or two further. The, the word through... To me, I'm always surprised that they translated it through because, you know, it, it, it's the Greek word in. It means in, in Christ, in him. And by the way, the word Christ is technically not in the Greek. It's in the one who strengthens me or in him who strengthens me. And it's not a bad translation to put Christ in because likely Paul was speaking directly of Christ. I think that's true. But I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Think about it this way. I am content. I, I, I can do all these things and still be content, whether I'm rich or poor. In Christ, the one who strengthens me. 
I want to take this one, even one step further. I think, this is a paraphrase, but I think what Paul is intending is this. I am content in all things in the one who satisfies. So this idea of in the one who strengthens me is the idea of he's given me strength to be content. He's my provider, Jaira. And because of that provision, because of the one whom I am in, who is all provision and is all strength, I can be satisfied. I can be content in the one who satisfies me. Now, that's a different way to hear that verse. But I wanted you to hear it that way because if Paul's saying this is the secret to contentment, we need to understand what he's meaning. This is a big deal. Now, I also want to say it's not as easy as just saying like, oh, I get it. Jesus satisfies me. Now I'm satisfied. It's a long process to move toward fullness in Jesus Christ. That is not to say at the point of your salvation that you are not already in Christ. You are. At the point of your salvation, you have the spirit. At the point of your salvation, you've been declared righteous. You're united with Jesus Christ. Living into that, understanding that, working out your own salvation, as Paul would say, takes a lifetime. Paul had had a lot of practice. And that's what he's commenting on. He's like, I've been through all these things. I've been rich. I've been poor. I've had a lot of food. I've been starving to death. And here's what I've learned. This is the secret I've learned from all of that, that Jesus is my satisfaction. And in him, I can be content in it all because I'm full. What I think we're seeing here in Paul's writing is the fruit of a man who was wholly centered on Jesus Christ. That's not to say Paul was perfect. No, not by a long shot. I actually think Paul would have been pretty annoying to know in person. <laughs> but he was, he was all in on Jesus. I mean, that just bleeds through him. Remember, you know, we kind of gave up doing it after a while because I kind of lost count, but we were putting a, a box on every time that Jesus would show up and the gospel would show up. It's all over this book. Like he can't go two sentences without talking about Jesus. He was all in on Jesus. In fact, you, you remember at one point in chapter one, he says, for me to live is Christ. I like the way Gordon Fee talks about Paul. Gordon Fee wrote, a great commentary on Philippians. And here, here's what he wrote, commenting on this passage. Paul was a man in Christ. As such, he took what Christ brought. If it meant plenty, he was a man in Christ and that alone. If it meant want, he was still a man in Christ. And he accepted deprivation as part of his understanding of discipleship. And when you hear about discipleship, don't think about, oh, that's bad and terrible. I don't want to be, you know, go through discipleship because that's really hard. No, discipleship is like walking closer and closer toward life. And Jesus is life. 
Paul understood deprivation at times can be part of his walking closer and closer to life. So I want to bring the Stoics back into this because now I want to explain how what Paul is teaching here is actually not Stoic philosophy. Although in the previous verse, it sounded like he was saying that. It's like, I've learned to be self-sufficient, content, no matter what. But then he goes on in this, here's the secret. He goes, the secret is actually outside of me. It's Christ. So think about it this way. Paul agreed with the Stoics to the place of saying satisfaction can't be found in all that stuff out there that, that Mick Jagger is chasing after and you and I are chasing after. But Paul also understood God did not design human beings for self-sufficiency. We were not designed to be autonomous creatures. In our fallenness, we want to be. I think in our American culture, we, we lift up an ideal of like self-sufficiency and independence. I don't need anybody. I definitely don't need a God. Guys, you can fight against this your whole life. But the very cry of your soul for something to satisfy you is testament that you were not designed for self-sufficiency. So the only question remains is, where do you think you're going to find fullness? What are you going to go after? Because you know it's not in you. Stoicism didn't work. How many Stoics do you know today? <laughs> now, I, actually, the philosophy kind of keeps creeping back in different ways. But, but ultimately, it's just not enough people can experience life in trying to disassociate from their circumstances and just be self-sufficient in themselves for this thing to ever catch on. We were not made to be self-sufficient. We were designed to get fullness and satisfaction from outside of us, externally. God designed us that way. Paul taught that true contentment is not self-sufficiency. It's God-sufficiency. And I know I, I wrestled with that because when, even when I read that sentence after I wrote it, I thought, that's just the Sunday school answer, right? Like that doesn't seem to work in real life, really. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Oh, just depend on God, you know, depend on Jesus. You know, we, we can throw away these lines sometimes, but I want you to think about the life of this man who wrote these words. He's near his death. He'd been through everything. He'd given everything. Here was a man who actually experienced this. So Paul had experienced peace in the midst of danger. Paul had experienced fullness in the midst of starvation, you know, true fullness. And even as he was writing these words, Paul was experiencing joy in the midst of imprisonment. So what Paul would say to Seneca if they had a conversation, and by the way, they, they, their lives overlapped. They were, they were contemporaries, but, but we don't know of them ever meeting. Paul would probably say, you know, Seneca, in actuality, we do need something outside of ourselves to satisfy us. But anything apart from God will not do it. 
You're right. Satisfaction is not found in our circumstances, but it's also not found internally. It's found by being joined together to the source of all fullness. So I want to get to some application for us. And I want to push this a little bit because, you know, it's, it's really hard for sermons not just to, to stop at that level of like, okay, that's the Christian answer and, and everybody leaves and moves on. But this is a big deal, right? Satisfaction, contentment. This is a really big deal inside of us. And, and so I want you to think about something for a minute. We are all philosophers in the sense that we have to wrestle with where we think satisfaction exists, in the sense that we have to wrestle with where, where is their meaning in life. You know, we're, we're all seekers of wisdom in that sense. You know, uh, fullness of life, we're moving toward it. It's like we're like magnets trying to find something. And in a very generalized sense, you could say there are only two paths you can take on your search. You can search for meaning and fulfillment inside yourself, or you can search for meaning and fulfillment outside of yourself. We probably have both in the room. Most of us likely have been searching for meaning and fulfillment outside of ourselves. In other words, it, it's the marriage that's supposed to fill me. It's the grandkids that's supposed to fill me. It's the career aspiration. It's the job. It's the friendships. It's the next stage of my life. You know, we, we just go through every stage of life thinking, okay, that next stage is going to be full. That next stage is going to be where I experience fullness of life. What God is saying to us in this text, through this text, the Spirit speaking to us through these words, is that you will not find satisfaction in your circumstance. Whether you're in good circumstances right now or some of you are not, you won't find it there. It's not in there. It's not as easy as saying, when I get the things I desire, I'll be satisfied. I remember growing up, I didn't want Jesus to come back before I was married. You know, some of you, like, those of you that grew up in Christian homes, like, that, that you're like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Some of you, that's where you're at right now. I was joking with a guy uh, between services. I was like, well, I'm ready for Jesus to come back now because my dogs are national champions. <laughs> you knew I had to mention that at some point in time. I haven't seen you guys since then. The reality is, you get married and you realize, oh, okay, this is great in many ways and it's not satisfying. You have kids, you have grandkids, you get the job, you don't get the job. You retire, retirement's greater. It's not, I don't know, I'm not there yet, but I've learned enough in my 46 years of life to know that there's no satisfaction out there in all those circumstances. So you, we know this. Why is it so hard for us to, to be reminded of it? So the text is telling us you won't find it in circumstance, but the text is also saying you won't find it in self-sufficiency. You can't just transcend all this stuff and just say, I'm going to be, you know, at peace in my internal self because you were not designed to be self-sufficient. What you were designed to be is connected to God who is the source, the source of life. And guys, I don't think this is like a one time, oh, I realized this and now I'm there as much as it is, oh, I, I tasted something. Let me go after that a little bit more. I, I tasted some intimacy with Christ. Let me, let me go after that a little bit more. I, I, I turned aside from something that I thought could satisfy and I actually found some, something real. As Jesus, Jesus and I walked through something together, let me do a little more of that. And every year, every year, every year, 
to grow. So let me summarize and wrap this up and then, I want, and then I'll give us our invitation to joy. The secret, guys, to contentment, according to Paul, and according to the Spirit speaking through Paul, the secret to contentment is learning to live in Christ. But what does that mean? It means pursuing communion with him. Relational connection. Going to him with your desires and your needs. Talking to him about your dissatisfaction. Like, Jesus, what's wrong with me and what's wrong with the world? Because I can't get no. It means going to, to Christ, seeking satisfaction in him. That takes a lot of faith. John chapter seven is one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. There's this section where Jesus, this is shortly before he died. He goes before the crowds in Jerusalem and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What a crazy, bold thing to say. And of course, you know, he's not talking about literal thirst. It's not like he was carrying on a bucket of water or something like that. He was saying, I am satisfaction for the thirsty soul. Some of you in the room have believed in Jesus, but you've never actually leaned on him in that way. You've never actually said, Jesus, help me to come to you and drink. Maybe you've never even talked about your thirst with Jesus. You see, seeking satisfaction from Jesus makes all the sense in the world because ultimately he's the source of every good thing. Seeking satisfaction from the other thing, the circumstances, you know, jobs, relationships, dreams, money, comfort, all those things. That doesn't make sense because all those things are derivatives of the one, of the source. So here's our invitation to joy. And just an opportunity for you to apply this. Consider one area of your life where you struggle with contentment. For most of us, that will not be hard to name. What is God saying to you through this text about that thing? Let the words come to life and integrate with where you're really wrestling right now. That's why we do this every week. It's not just you know, intellectual exercises. And then secondly, what would a step toward Jesus look like for you this week? Because guys, ultimately, you're gonna grow in contentment. It's not gonna happen today. But if you're not taking steps toward intimacy with Jesus... You're just going to keep singing that song over and over and over. So I don't know what that might look like. It might be um, you haven't really been praying much other than cursory prayers before meals and such, and you need to do, you need to just sit down, kneel down, lay down, whatever it is, get yourself in a position of prayer and talk to Jesus about your thirst. Maybe for some of you, it's, you know, take a walk this week, just be alone and, and just contemplate on this verse and, and this new understanding of what this verse is all about and say, Jesus, I want to believe that it's true that I can be satisfied in you, but honestly, I don't know. If that's where you're at, talk to him about it. That's where I'm at sometimes. So what would it look like for you to move toward Jesus this week? 
We're going to have an opportunity to re-sing that song that the band introduced us to earlier, Jaira. And, and again, you know, Luke explained this really well. The, the word Jaira means he's our provider. Think about all that Paul had to go through before he could write this verse. Think now about what Abraham had to go through. When this name of God came about, it, it was when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. And at that moment where he was ready to go through with it, God said, stop, stop. And guess what that place was named? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Jireh, he's our provider. And so we're gonna sing these words. You are enough, I will be content in every circumstance because you are forever enough, always enough, more than enough. Let's pray that these words can express our heart. Father, would you help us even as we sing to take steps toward Jesus, to lean in and believe he might just be our satisfaction. In his name we pray.